Well, good afternoon, church. If you and I haven't met before, my name is John, and I'm one of the members of the board here at the church. There, can you see me now? And uh, I was previously one of the pastors here. I worked here for just over 10 years, and it's now my privilege to serve as a volunteer. And I want you to know we're glad you're here today. Right now, we are in the middle of a series called Champions. And it's all about becoming a champion. Now, whenever I think of championships, the first thing that comes to my mind is like somebody hoisting up like the Stanley Cup. I think of it in terms of the championships when it comes to especially team sports, right? And there's all kinds of championships when it comes to team sports, both, you know, at the local level and the national level and the international level, right? Whether it's soccer or football or hockey or whatever your sport happens to be. But of course, there's also championships when it comes to sports that are not team sports. For instance, golf or tennis. There's uh, championships when it comes to bowling, when it comes to car racing, when it comes to hot dog eating. I mean, if you can think of a particular skill, there is probably a championship for it. I mean, there are championships for gardeners. You know, who can grow like the biggest pumpkin? You ever seen that? There are championships uh, for people that jump bunny rabbits. I know, some of you are thinking right now, where can I get myself one of those championship rabbits that's going to jump over whatever they jump over, those special jumping bunny rabbit championships, right? I get, that gets you guys excited, I know. Well, <laughs> this morning as we go through this talk, I want you to think of becoming a champion from the perspective of winning the battle for your character, And when we talk about character, what we're talking about is we're talking about the morals, the ethics, the values that guide the decisions you make on a daily basis. And not just those decisions that that people see, but also those decisions that you make behind the scenes that no one else sees. It's the motivation even behind the choices that you make. And the reason that I call this a battle for your character is because I know in my own life, there's often a difference between the person that I want to be and the actual choices that I often make. There's like a, there's a gap there. See, as a follower of Jesus, I know that God has called me to be someone who is like Christ, like Jesus in my character, and yet I also recognize that there's a difference between who God is calling me to be and who I currently am. I mean, even if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a religious person, there are still values and morals and ethics that you hold dear to, and yet I guarantee for every single one of us in this room, there are places where we fall short of even our own expectations for ourselves. It's like there's this war that goes on inside of us. There's there's a battle that takes place for our character. I know in my own life, sometimes it seems like I will take two steps forward and one step back. And that's on a good day. The bad days are one step forward and two steps back. My wife and I, we we live in a fairly new neighborhood. There's all kinds of construction and noise all around us right now a lot of the time. And uh, seven or eight weeks ago now, there was one particular week where I worked really, really long hours. I put in almost 60 hours over five days and three of the five days I worked were night shifts. Now, I know many worked 
You've worked night shifts. You've worked those graveyard shifts. You know exactly what I'm talking about. When you put in long hours and you're not sleeping properly at night, by the end of the week, I mean, you are just done. You're exhausted. You have nothing left to give. Well, my very last shift this week was on a Friday night. I got off early Saturday morning, and I was dead. I was completely dead to the world. I mean, I couldn't think straight. I probably couldn't even spell my own name if you asked me to. And I climbed into bed, and I was probably out cold by about 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. Now, at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning, I was awoken abruptly by someone at the door of our house. And I don't mean like knock, knock, ding, dong. Somebody was banging on our door like bang, 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 and ringing the doorbell like ding, 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 bang, bang, bang. And so, I, I mean, I was jolted out of this sleep where I was completely dead to the world. And I immediately, like, jumped out of bed, and I grabbed my bathrobe, and this is what I thought was happening. I thought, the fire department is standing on the doorstep of my house because the house next door that's under construction is on fire, or there's a gas leak, and they are incessantly trying to wake us up to save the lives of me and my family. And so I run downstairs. And one of my children, one of my daughters, is standing, staring at the front door. Thankfully, she hadn't opened it on her own, but she's staring at the front door because obviously the banging and the doorbell ringing has woken her up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And so I look out the peephole, expecting to see someone in a uniform that wants to save my life standing there. And there's no one through the peephole. So I open the door, and I stand on my porch, and there's no fire trucks parked in the street. There's no police cars. This is not the scene that I was expecting. But instead, what I see is I see three guys working on the driveway of the house under construction next door. And so I said to them, did you ring my doorbell? And one of them said, yeah. We got a cement truck that's coming to pour this driveway right away, and it's going to have to back in here. If you could just move your car for us so that we have better access to the driveway. And like a little switch flipped in my head, and I went completely cold black. I mean, like completely cold black. And all of a sudden, there was like this little tiny ball of fury inside the pit of my stomach. And the lack of sleep and the long hours at work, and the fact that it was only three hours into the sleep that I desperately needed, and now it was 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and my children had been awoken by these people needing to pour a driveway, and I exploded. I mean, I unleashed a tirade on these guys like I have never unleashed on anyone ever before in my entire life. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you instantly realize that you have completely blown it? I mean, here I was standing in my bathrobe on the porch of my house, swearing at some random strangers I had never met before, yelling at them. I mean, I, I was a pastor. I worked here at this church for more than 10 years. I mean, what are the chances over the course of that decade that one of those guys may at some point have come to some kind of event or a service here, would recognize that, hey, that guy used to be a pastor, and now here he's standing on his porch in his bathrobe screaming at me. 
I mean, how embarrassing is that? Have you ever been in a situation where you realize that the beliefs that you hold in your head that you know to be true aren't lining up with the decisions and the actions that you're taking? It's funny, it seems like there's this disconnect at times between who we know we're called to be and the decisions that we're actually making. And let me give you some further examples of this. I'm going to start with a real heavy one. I'm just going to warn you right off the bat. It's going to feel a little uncomfortable. So, you know, just blink, look around now before I say something so that <clears throat> when we get to this next point that you're, you're settled, okay? Let's talk about pornography for a moment. Everyone's favorite topic on a Sunday morning at church. See, you may know on a cognitive level in your mind that pornography is something that is destructive and unhealthy. It goes against the very fabric of the beautiful gift of sexuality that God has given to us. You may understand that it's destructive for you, not only as someone that might consume it, but even for those people that are stuck in that industry, imagine just the horrendous disservice that human beings are doing to one another through this industry. And the ramifications of it are far-reaching beyond even what we can currently comprehend. And yet, knowing that it's unhealthy, knowing that's that it's destructive for you, do you still look at it? Nobody's looking around. Nobody's blinking. Everybody's standing like perfectly still. Like, please move on to the next point. Okay, here, here's one that's not quite as uncomfortable. What about honesty? I have yet to meet a single person in my entire life who values dishonesty. I don't know anybody that values dishonesty. Honesty is one of those like universal things that we value just as humans, especially in other people. Nobody likes to be lied to. Nobody likes it when someone doesn't tell them the truth or isn't forthcoming with them. We all value honesty. And yet, even though we know on a cognitive level that it's important to be honest. We value honesty. We esteem honesty. When it's more convenient, oftentimes we will lie. I mean, think about a situation maybe where you're at work and you just, you know, you, you tell your boss something that maybe is not quite true because it saves you from getting in, in trouble. Or perhaps you omit something in a conversation with your spouse because it's a little bit more convenient not to have a further argument about it. For instance, the price of something that you may have purchased without consulting your spouse first, and then maybe you don't really want them to know how much money you spent, so you sort of leave that out of the equation. Or maybe that item gets hidden in the garage or the basement, and they don't even know that you bought it. I mean, often when it's more convenient, we'll lie just a little bit, even though we value honesty. You know, how much integrity do we have when it comes to, you know, filling out the time card at work? I mean, the boss that's footing the bill for that time card, he certainly values your integrity. You know, what about in your business dealings? For those of you that own businesses or are managers or have responsibility in business, how honest are you? How about when you sit down to do your taxes? 
I mean, there's so many areas where we face this internal battle, this struggle, and we may know that God has called us to be people that reflect the character of Jesus, and yet there's often these gaps where we recognize we're not making the decisions we know that God is calling us to make. We're not the person yet that we know God is calling us to be. And so in looking at this challenge, this battle that we face for our own character and to become people who are more like Jesus, the question is, on a practical level, how do we make those changes? How do we turn away from those things we know which are sinful and unhealthy and, and, and do the opposite? How do we make those changes so that we're not simply just floating through life hoping that we get better, hoping that we change, but on a practical level actually make some of those changes to become the person that we want to be and that God calls us to be. And today I want us to look at an interesting passage of scripture that's found in the book of Daniel chapter 1 where we're going to look at this passage together and study it And I'm hoping that as a result, we are going to see some of those answers that we're looking for. Now, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But before we turn there together, before they put it on the screen, I just want to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context as to what's happening in this point in history. The beginning of Daniel chapter 1 starts 606 years before Jesus. And at the time, the Babylonian Empire was at its peak. And the Babylonian Empire at that point in time was led by a king, a ruler, named Nebuchadnezzar. And the base of his kingdom was the city of Babylon, which today would be located in southern Iraq. And at the time, Babylon was one of the most incredible cities on the face of the planet. And King Nebuchadnezzar had dedicated himself to improving and expanding and making this city the greatest city in the world. In fact, later, the Persians spent a lot of time using Babylon as their home base. Alexander the Great, when the Greeks conquered most of the known world, spent much of his time in the city of Babylon because it was such an incredible city that, and most of it was because of King Nebuchadnezzar when he was the ruler. Now, in 606 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies to the city of Jerusalem, where the Israelites, the, the people of God, lived. And he conquered the city and completely devastated it. And from that city, he took back the majority of the people, the majority of God's people who lived there, the Israelites, and he brought them as captives all the way back to the city of Babylon. And in addition to all of the people, he took all of the valuables, all of the gold, all of the sacred items from the temple of God, and he brought those back to Babylon as well. And once the captives had arrived in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar says this to the chief of staff who is in charge of the royal palace. He says, I want you to go, and among the captives, I want you to find some young men who are of noble birth or from the royal family who would be able to serve in my palace. But here's some qualifications that they must meet first. They have to be smart. They have to be strong. They have to be good-looking. They have to show an aptitude for learning, and they have to show good, sound judgment. And I want you to take this group of young men, and I want you to train them in the ways of Babylon. I want you to give them new Babylonian names. I want you to dress them like Babylonians. I want them to study the Babylonian language, Babylonian literature, Babylonian culture, 
And over the next three years, I want you to put them through this process so that we can select from this group of people that we're going to train to serve me. The decree that King Nebuchadnezzar gave to his chief of staff was essentially to take this group of captives and strip them of their identity as Israelites, to de-Israelize them and pro-Babylonize them, to take the identity that they had grown up with as God's people and to take that away from them and instead to indoctrinate them with the values of Babylon. For them, instead of of recognizing themselves as Israelites, for them now to see themselves as Babylonians. It was essentially Babylonian university that he wanted to put them through. And among the captives that were taken, there was four young men that we're going to be looking at today. There was Daniel, of course, who the book is named after, and three of his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And these four young men were among those that were selected to go through this training process. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, we're going to look at what happened to them. It says, But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Which is a valid concern. Verse 11, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Sounds terrible. (laughs) Daniel said, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. Verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. And whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, He found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. I want us to go back and highlight a few things that are found within this passage that that I believe are critical for you and I today. First of all, in verse 8, it says, but Daniel was determined. Poke your neighbor, tell them, Daniel was determined. Don't poke them in the eye, though, okay? That's not nice. Daniel was determined. Some translations actually say he had resolved. 
Daniel had determined, he had resolved not to defile himself. Now, we don't actually know what was wrong with the the food and the wine that came from the, the king's kitchen. The kitchens of the palace. It doesn't specify why this was something that, that Daniel did not want to defile himself by. It's quite possible that the food that was cooked in the, the kitchens of the palace was first offered to the gods of the Babylonians before it was served to the people. It's also possible that the specific foods that were being prepared for them were foods that, that weren't allowed in the dietary restrictions of the, the law that was given to the Israelites. We're not sure why it is. That, that, that they weren't able to eat this food. But here's what we do know. We know that Daniel was determined. He had resolved not to defile himself. In the midst of the pressure to do exactly what the captors said they should do, in the midst of the pressure and the education they were receiving to abandon their history and their identity as Israelites, Daniel was determined not to defile himself. He was determined to maintain his faith. He was determined to serve the living God that he had been taught all of his life to serve, and there was this line that he was not willing to cross, and he stood firm and said, I will not defile myself. Now, when I look at this passage of Scripture, the question that I have to ask myself is how determined am I not to defile myself? How determined am I to serve God and to abandon those things in my life which don't honor Him? How determined am I not to be defiled by whatever else is going on in the world around me? Whatever pressures I might face, whether it's at work or at school or in any other sphere of life, how determined am I not to defile myself? How determined am I to close that gap between the person I currently am and the person I know God is calling me to be? How determined are you not to defile yourself? How determined are you to serve God? And see, one of the challenges I think we face often as followers of Jesus is we're hoping that those things in our life which aren't good, which aren't healthy, that don't honor God, that are sinful, that God will just simply take them away after one magical prayer and we won't have to deal with them ever again. And while I have seen God do incredible, miraculous things in the lives of many people, in my own experience, I have found that whenever there is something that I want to pursue in my life to honor God and to take those steps of faith, it requires effort. It requires effort on our part. How determined are you to serve God? How determined are you not to defile yourself? And it's interesting to note that the first thing that happens after we read that Daniel was determined not to defile himself is he comes up against opposition right away. You see, in in verse 8 here, it says that Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. So he went and he asked the chief of staff, He asked the head honcho for permission not to eat the unacceptable foods. 
And then it's interesting because in the very next verse, the Bible says that the chief of staff had both affection and respect for Daniel that was given by God. God had already given Daniel favor with the chief of staff of the entire palace. This guy was already on team Daniel. He already liked him. This was somebody that obviously God had given Daniel favor with. So Daniel approaches him and he says, listen, can I have your permission not to eat these foods? I have determined I'm not going to defile myself. This goes against what I believe. What do you say? And the chief of staff says, sorry, no. No. No, no, this, this isn't going to work. See, if you look pale and thin and sickly compared to all the rest of the people that were training, it's my head on the line. And I am not willing to stick my head out for you. No, no, uh, we're not going to do that. That's not what we're going to do. Daniel goes to the guy who likes him, the head honcho, and immediately he's told no. No, it's not going to work. And, and often I found in my own life that when I have resolved to do something, when I felt, key word there, felt, determined to make a change or to step out in faith, that I'm often surprised when immediately there's opposition. I'm sort of like, Hey, wait a second, God. I, I feel really determined to step out in faith for you. I, I'm going to make these changes. How come now I'm all of, I, why, why am I receiving this opposition? Why is this temptation in my path? Well, why is it that these things are happening that are preventing me from doing what I've decided I'm going to do? And, and what happens is we give up. Temptation comes our way. Opposition comes our way. Reasons why we can't do what we felt like we were determined to do interfere, and we say, okay, well, I guess it's just too hard. I, I, guess, I guess God's just not going to help me change. I guess it's just not, not going to work. I felt, I felt determined, but, you know, fades quickly in the face of opposition. But it's interesting to note what Daniel did when he faced opposition. Verse 11 says that Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he says to him, Let, look, let's, let's just do a little experiment here. Let's take 10 days, and for 10 days, let's just do the vegetables and the water and just see what happens. Look, just a trial. If at the end of the 10 days, we don't look the way we're supposed to look, something's wrong, then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll look at other options. See, in the face of opposition, Daniel doesn't give up. He keeps pushing. He says, this is what I've determined in my heart that I must do. And even though I got a no, I'm going to keep pushing until I get a yes. Now, I don't know why it's only Daniel and his three friends that had this line in the sand. I, I, I'm not sure why. You see, all of the people that were being trained with them, these were all captives from Israel. It's not like these four are the four Jewish kids that are being trained amidst a whole group of Babylonians that are also going through the same training. No, the entire group of them that are being trained here, they are all captives from Israel. They all would have been raised knowing who the God of creation was, being taught the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they all would have been raised in this godly environment, and yet 
for some reason, it's only these four who said, I'm not gonna defile myself. This is the the line in the sand. You can give me a new name. You can give me new clothes. You can train me in a a different language and a different culture and different literature from what I grew up with. You can remove me from my home where my family was and everything that I've known dear to me, but there's this line that I'm not willing to cross. And so why, why only these four young men? The scholars estimate that Daniel was about 15 years old when he was taken into captivity. But for whatever reason, the others didn't put their foot down. They didn't draw that line in the sand. And maybe it's because they were scared of what the consequences would be if they stepped out in faith. Maybe they were worried that things wouldn't go well for them with their captors if, if somehow they, they didn't just go along with whatever was, was being done. And I think many times we find ourselves in that same situation where we're a little bit scared to really step out in faith and serve God and to make changes in our lives. We're not, we're not sure if we really want to go that far in our relationship with God. Or maybe we don't want to look like the religious weirdo at work or with your neighbors or or, or with the fellow students you go to school with. But for whatever reason, there was only these four who resolved not to defile themselves. And, And I want us to look at what the results of that were. See, at the end of the 10 days, it says that Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who'd been eating the food assigned by the king. Like in in the course of 10 days, they actually physically looked better than they did to begin with. And they looked better than all the rest of this group that was eating whatever they were served from from the king's kitchen. And I imagine that the food that came from the king's kitchen looked pretty good. I mean, I don't know if any of you are vegetarians and you're like right in there with Daniel and his three buddies, but for me, and that sounds terrible. I'm sure that it required extra resolve on their part to keep up with this commitment that they made. It wasn't something that was easy. But the reward at the end is that they looked healthier and better nourished than everyone else. And at the end of the training period, it says that God had granted them a special ability to understand the literature and the wisdom that was required for them to serve the king. They had an unusual aptitude, is is what we've got in the New Living Translation, an unusual aptitude. You see, what happened is, is that God supernaturally gave them results that were far better than what they could ever have achieved on their own. It's worth noting that when you and I step out in faith, that we don't do it alone. As we step out in faith, as we continue to push to do what we know is right, as we continue to push to rid our lives of things that are unhealthy, to become more like Jesus, we don't do it alone. God partners with us, he goes before us, and he opens doors supernaturally and accomplishes more than we ever could accomplish on our own. When your beliefs as a Christian line up with your actions, there is blessing. 
When your beliefs line up with your actions, there is blessing because we walk in partnership with Almighty God. You see, Daniel may have traded the easy path for a path that was more difficult. He and his friends certainly put themselves at risk when they made this resolution and they stood firm in their faith and they said, this is a line we're not going to cross. But the, but the end result was that the king found these four to be far wiser than anyone else that had gone through the same training. And when you give up porn, or you determine that you're going to be honest, or you determine that you're going to step out in faith and talk about Jesus with the people around you, when you start to make those changes to become the person of God that he's called you to be, you are trading maybe temporary pleasure for something so much greater because you have no idea what doors God can supernaturally open for you. You have no idea how much healthier your relationships, your marriage, your interactions with other people can be when you choose to put God first. I am so grateful that when we mess up, that we have a loving God who is there to offer us his mercy and his grace and forgiveness. You know, you and I, as followers of Christ, we are serving Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And when we stumble and we fall, when we make mistakes, we have a loving Savior who is there to forgive and to offer us his grace and his mercy. And we have the Holy Spirit that is there to strengthen us and encourage us so that we can turn around and abandon those things that are not good, that we know are sinful, so that we can step out in faith and serve God. And he is so faithful to partner with us. As we close our time together today, church, I want, I want to throw out some challenges. First of all, if you're here today, maybe as, as we've been going through this talk, there's just been something stirring in your spirit. And you know that today is the day to make a decision to serve Jesus. Maybe you've never made that decision before. I want to put out a challenge today. Would today be the day that you accept Jesus to acknowledge that he died on the cross for your sin and to invite him to be the Lord of your life? Or maybe today is the day where you rededicate your life after years ago. Maybe you made a decision at some point to serve God. And now today you're saying, I want to I reaffirm my commitment to Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and you've been a Christian for some time. But you recognize that gap between the person God calls you to be and the decisions that you're currently making and you want to close that gap and submit yourself to Jesus and to take that step of faith today, I want to encourage you, no matter what situation you find yourself in, the Holy Spirit is here to work on us, to encourage us, to challenge us if we simply open ourselves to God's Spirit.